Awesome. Well, if you're a guest with us, welcome. We are in uh, second, or sorry, First Timothy. Uh, we are ending First Timothy. We've been journeying through the book of First Timothy. We've come to the last remarks from the Apostle Paul to his uh, protege in the faith, Timothy. Um, and so we'll be concluding chapter six. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hands. Uh, if you don't own one, this is our gift. Our ushers will bring you one. Um, we will we will finish First Timothy today. Then next week we will be in Psalm 19 for a special sermon there, and then we will the following week, September 11th, jump back in or jump into Second Timothy. So we are we're finishing First Timothy, headed into Second Timothy this fall. Um, it's been a it's been a we've seen a lot in this book. Paul has been writing to this young pastor Timothy, and they've had a, a lot of struggles. There's false teachers that have stood against him. There have been uh, rules that he needed to lay out on how to govern uh, the, the, the organization through the church, specifically uh, elders, deacons, how to manage things. And he's coming to the end of this letter. Paul has seen Timothy as a father would his son. And so he ends the letter with a few things. The first thing we see here is the, to fight the good fight. To fight the good fight. He says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he says this, But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. He's referring to the things that we spoke to last week of the false teachers. Flee the false teaching. Flee, and then if you flee something, what should you do instead? Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life in which God, in which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He starts this last, his final address, his final charge to Timothy, telling him, calling him uh, a man of God. He says, you, oh man of God, as for you, you're not a false teacher. You are, you are a, a cold one. You are a son of God. You are, a, you are the pastor of this church. Timothy, you are a man of God. What he's not doing is just just Doing what we like to do is just tell people things to make them feel better about themselves. Like, oh, you're just really smart when the person is not. Like, you just you just look very good when you're like, ah, you're lying to you. This is not what he's doing. He's not doing one of these like just uh, uh, you know hyper hyperbolic encouragements in order to give him false sense of uh, security, false sense of hope. This just uh, a gusto of adrenaline to get him through the day or tomorrow. He's calling him a man of God. He's calling him this because that is who Timothy is. That is who he is. We've been we've referred to his faith. Talk, we'll see next in the next book, 2 Timothy, that his faith began from his grandmother to his mother, then to him. We're told here that he has this confession. So he's, he's professed faith. He's, a, he's, he's taken hold of faith. So what he is saying here is that he's comparing him to the false teachers. He said, you believed in the right salvation, in that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He was crucified in the place of sinners. And after being buried three days, he rose from the dead, victorious, conquering sin, Satan, death, and the grave. The false teachers offer false hope. The false teachers offer uh, means, like we talked about last week, mean of gain. Their gain is their, is their false teaching. Their, their gain is the, uh, the approval of man. Their gain is, is maybe money or, or, or uh, uh, friendships or, or uh, good company or good faith with the world we live in. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, the world may hate you. And we've talked about this up to this point. So this is just, he's, he's ending this letter with this sentence. They may hate you. They may reject you. They may not agree with you. But you don't peddle the gospel like the false teachers do. Stand firm, O man of God. We, I need you to see this. If you know, love, and trust Jesus, that, that Christ's righteousness has been given to you. You are a son or daughter of God. Part of the heavenly family. That's, that's the encouragement he's giving Timothy. He's not telling him uh, something that he's not. He's telling him God has bestowed upon you the title of son. 
you're a child of God. He says, therefore, pursue righteousness. So he talks about who he is, his identity in Christ, and then what to do. He says, pursue righteousness. What this is, is pursue holiness. Live a righteous or right life, right? Right according to God's word, according to God's will, according to God's ways. How do you do that? You, you submit to the word of God. This is, this is the word of God. This is what we submit to. This is what we, uh, uh, how we pursue righteousness is being obedient to, to Jesus and his word. It's not just doing, quote, right things by society. Society will have a different standard of righteousness no matter what point of history you live in. Right now, preaching the gospel of Jesus in some places is called, it would be considered hate speech. Why? Because there's one way. We declare that there's one way, one salvation, one hope. His name is Jesus. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven. Jesus. The world we live in, they may say that narrow-minded or bigoted. But it is true. We, we can't have a righteousness on our own. We can't pursue a righteousness based upon our own understanding. We're told through the scriptures of the Old Testament that our righteousness on our own, this is what the Bible says. Obviously, if you know where I'm going, then you know. But it says this, that human beings, their righteousness on their own is like a used menstrual garment, a bloody tampon. That's the words of the scripture. Like, oh, that sounds gross. Yes, that's you and I and our righteousness. That is our righteousness. That's what we bring to God in our best days, our, our most good deeds that you could do is that of a filthy minstrel. That's your righteousness. So what Paul is not saying, just do good things. He's saying, live the righteous life that has been granted to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So when he became a man of God, when he became a Christian, what ended up happening and what happens for you and I when we become Christians is God takes Jesus' righteousness, his perfection, his sinlessness, and he applies it to our account. And Jesus, through his death, takes our imperfection, our filthy rags, and puts them on his account and takes the punishment for our sin. Through faith in Jesus Christ, there's a great exchange where Jesus takes your sin and you get his righteousness. So what he is telling Timothy is pursue this righteousness, this holiness. Live like Jesus. He further emphasizes it says, live, pursue godliness. This is a reflecting, godliness is reflecting the nature and character of God. Notice he's thinking to pursue these things. He's not saying this is the automatic result of being a Christian. Some of you have been a Christian for a while and you're like, man, I just really struggle to live uh, uprightness and a righteous life. I, I struggle to reflect God's nature and character uh, and godliness. I struggle there. Yeah, you do. Pursue it though. Pursue it. We struggle not to earn, but we struggle because we live. We struggle because we live in the flesh. We struggle in this life, but we, we don't strive to earn, but we labor because we have been saved. We have been adopted. We have been granted righteousness. So he says, continue in it. Continue in what you've been called to, to right to righteousness. Continue in godliness, what you've been called to. Continue, he says, in faith. Sweet times, Timothy, that you need faith. Faith is the only thing that's going to get you through your circumstances. There's going to be times of doubt. There's going to be times of fear. There's going to be times where your circumstances look so dark and so bleak that you don't know how you're going to get through that, quote, season of your life or that, the next three months of your life or the next year of your life or the next day. Things are going to be so dark. There's going to be times like that, Timothy. Pursue faith. Pursue faith. This isn't a blind faith, a wishful thinking, but pursue faith in God. Don't, don't find your faith in your circumstances. Find your faith in the God who rules over your circumstances, who's taking you through the storm. He's not walking around it, but he's walking with you through it. Put your faith in God. It's not blind. It's clear. It's a, it's a faith fixed on Jesus. He says, pursue love. This is, this is literally takes us, takes effort. We must pursue love. We don't all love naturally. You don't. 
even the best people, the people you like the most, you don't love them naturally. You don't love them naturally. We're told in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. Ever been impatient? You are the loving person. Look at you. You're like me. I'm loving. We're, we, we, we struggle in patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. Ever not been kind or gentle? Ever been self-seeking? It's unloving. The first Corinthians 13 unpacks love, this unconditional love that we are to pursue. It's the same love which Christ has loved us. We are to pursue, enjoy, uh, remember, and then reflect it to those we encounter. He says steadfastness, pursue steadfastness. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up being Christian. I, I was talking to someone recently, just how many people I've seen in my life Give up Jesus. I'm looking around the room right now, and I hope that none of you will give up Jesus. I really do. Some of you might. Some of you might be who Paul's warning Timothy about. You're fake Christians. If you're afraid that that's you, confess that. Run to Jesus. The Christian life is one that must endure to the end. Jesus says that to be the case. We're given the Holy Spirit to keep us steadfast, enduring, not giving up. Life, Christian faith, ministry, takes a a spirit-wrought steadfastness that if we don't have, we won't endure. Makes us dependent, makes us needy, makes us minimum pursue God. He then says, pursue gentleness. Or another word translation is meekness. What this is, it's not weakness, but it's this bridal strength. He's telling Timothy, you need to know how to use your temper, use your, your strength, use your aggression, use your, 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 your strength. How do you use it? He has to use his, his strength to do something. He says next, to fight. To fight. He's not fighting people. He's fighting false teachers, not them physically, but their doctrine. He's fighting for faith. He's fighting to endure, to not give up. He's fighting to pursue righteousness. He's fighting his own sin that would that's indwelling in him, that would keep him from Christ, that would keep him from wanting to pursue Jesus, to love Jesus, to find hope in Jesus. He's fighting for faith in the seasons of doubt. It says that he has to, to fight the good fight of faith. The Christian, you need to understand this. Some of you know this. Some of you are learning this. Some of you don't know this yet. Christianity is a struggle. It's a fight. It's a fight. The, the, the images here that would have been present in the Greco-Roman world at this time, uh, Paul's writing, would be two images. One is that of like a, a wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling. I think hand-to-hand combat. Um, uh, some of you you know, who watch UFC, something more like that, maybe something like that, or endurance marathon training, some sort of endurance race. Those are two images. Either a physical fight, hand-to-hand close range, uh, or an endurance race, whether it be rowing long distances, running long distances. Point being, it's exhausting. That's what he's saying. Christianity can be exhausting. The only way to endure as a Christian is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is supernatural. You need the Spirit of God to empower you to live life and godliness to do all these things that Paul's called Timothy to. Christianity is a fight. It's exhausting. You're fighting your own flesh that would rise up to, to, to trick you to believe that Jesus isn't who he says he is. We're told that Satan accuses the saints night and day. You're a Christian. Satan is accusing you all day long. Sometimes he uses other people to do it. You're fighting lies. You're fighting ideologies. You're fighting your own thoughts. You're fighting your own feelings. It's it's a fight. Christianity has no room for, for men and women who call themselves Christians who won't fight. You can't. You won't make it. You've got to fight. A good fight. It's not a fight for faith. It's a fight from faith. It's a fight from faith. It's a fight because you have faith and trust in Jesus. You're fighting as one who 
has won, that Jesus is your victor, that he is your protector, he is your defender. He is actually warring for you. He's not fighting against you. He's put a spirit, his spirit in you to empower you for the fight. But we must engage in the fight. So many Christians far too often find themselves lacking faith, find themselves lacking uh, in, in trust in Jesus, find themselves wanting to give up, find, find themselves not loving their neighbor, loving one another, find themselves not pursuing righteousness, find themselves bored with God's word. You ever been there, bored with God's word? I don't want to read God's word. Well, in that moment, you have one of two options. You can fight, or you can be taken over and submitted. Not by the Spirit of God, but by the Spirit of the age. It's exhausting. Then, well, I don't want to do any of this. Like, I don't. Well, because someone told you that being a Christian was just like having a good life. You know, it's just really easy when you give Jesus your sin. You don't really have any problems. Maybe that was, a, that was true in a day and age when Christians were the majority in our country. Maybe. He's no longer there. You're going to get heat from your, your, your friends. You're going to get heat from your family. You're going to get heat from the things you own. You said you're wondering what other people are going to think. You're going to get heat from everyone. In this world, if you want to be a Christian moving into the 2030s, if you want to get there, if you want to make it to the 2030s, you have to be a Christian fighting the fight of faith. Pursuing righteousness. Pursuing godliness. You can't just assume these things anymore. It's like a fight. It's exhausting. Both of these sports. Some of you are like, I don't, again, you're just making this not out to like what I want to do. I don't want to be a Christian. It's going to be this hard. Well, here's the deal. Here's the reality about sports and training. Both a wrestler or an uh, endurance athlete, that both of these sports take, take training. And so what Paul is telling Timothy, that Christianity takes a type of spiritual fitness. And here's the reality. When you get in shape, it's fun. I will say this. True statement. One, once upon a time in my life, I would say running was fun. You have a problem? You know, the, the, the one problem about running not being fun, getting out of shape. Because you know what's not fun? Getting into shape. But once you're in shape, anyone ever been in shape? Like running, you're like, this is, this is like therapeutic. I get to like think, clear my mind. I still the type of person who can run and talk at the same time. Weird, I know. I couldn't do that now. I can hardly walk and talk at the same time. It's just, it, there's a point in life and in training. And this is the unique thing about endurance training. Is that every single person, when it comes to slow twitch muscles, let me nerd out for a second, uh, for slow twitch muscles can be trained continually their entire life. They can always be expanding. You can always get a greater endurance. Fast twitch, there's a, there's a level in which you will never be faster than your fastest sprint. Or strong or strength as far as like lifting heavy objects, there will be a point in which you will never be able to lift more. But as far as endurance, that has biologically, there's no cap in, in one's ability to can increase their endurance. This is why people run ultra marathons, 100 mile races. I know people who run ultra uh, 100 mile races who in high school couldn't play any sports, couldn't do anything. They're like, hey, I'll start running. They got shaved. I'm like, what the heck? How'd you do that? They just kept adding. So here's some encouraging news for, for those who are hearing being a Christian is like a fight and it's exhausting. It's because you're out of shape. You're not used to when the enemy's telling you lies, turning the word of God, and, and calling him out on it. You're not used to every morning when you wake up and you're like, man, I don't want to pursue Jesus and his word, and you can close the book, and you just go do what you're doing. You're just out of shape. Every day you do that. Another day of, of not fitness, but faithlessness. It's another day of exhaustion. Another day it's going to get harder to, to, to get back into a, a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Jesus isn't looking at you going, hey, you have to work your earn your way back to me. You say, I'm always here. I'm always with you. But there is a fight. A fight against sin. A fight against the flesh. A fight against literally the lies and schemes of the devil that are, that are in opposition to you daily. 
Jesus is with you to help you endure the, 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 the fight. He's with you to protect you. He's with you to help you. He's, he's with you not just till you get in shape, but even after you're in a spiritual shape that, that's regularly in rhythms of relationship with Jesus. He's with you the whole time. But I need you to understand, some of you have no clue of why it's so hard to get into Christ's word. They just say, you might not be physically out of shape, but you're spiritually out of shape. Some might be both. Hey, it takes work. It takes work. It's exhausting. He says, do this. He says, take hold. Fight the good fight of faith. He says, take hold of eternal life. He's not saying earn it. What he is saying is this, this image of take hold is, is, is similar to the uh, images of, of fighting. This is a, uh, a violent image of, of grabbing, imagine grabbing someone's collar or to grabbing someone's neck. Or just, just, this is the image of Jacob wrestling with God. This is a, a clinch moment, a grabbing, a holding on to, a clinging to. This is, a, this is Abraham taking his son Isaac to be sacrificed. And what he's going to go through is, it seems uh, exhausting. It seems hard. It's like, I can't trust, can, I got to trust you, God. This is an, an enduring moment. And he's clinging to his faith. He's clinging to eternal life. He's not earning it. He's clinging to what he has. It's a fight. He's clinging to it. Additionally, this is a call to, to, to leave everything out there. To leave it all out there. Like the disciples. Leave everything for Jesus. Love Jesus more than anything. Leave it all out there like an athlete would in their sport. Timothy, run this race. He's saying, he's saying, fight the good fight. Fight such a good a way that you leave everything out there. Imagine your life. Imagine your life. Whenever it's all said and done, when you be able to say, I left it all out there. Paul will later say, when, when he, but right before he breathes his last breath, he'll tell Timothy that I, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I left it all out there. One of the most frustrating things for an athlete is to, to be in a sporting event and know that they had a little bit left. I could have, could have pushed it here. I could have made a better decision here. What he's not saying is, is this is any way formative to his earning righteousness or earning God's love. He's saying, because you're part of the team, this is, have you ever been on a team? Because you are already a part of the team, only people on the team get to play. He's saying, you're on the team. Leave it all out there. If you're a Christian in here today, you are on the team. Leave it all out there. Get in shape spiritually. Fight the good fight. Cling, hold on to eternal life. In John 17, Jesus tells us what this eternal life is. He says, this eternal life is knowing God and His Son and Jesus Christ. You're clinging to Jesus. You're holding on to Jesus, knowing Him, loving Him, reflecting Him, sharing Him. That's the mission. Cling to it. You've already been adopted into the family. You're already on the team. It's already yours. Hold on. Leave it all out there. Don't give up. He says that he made this good confession. He was called to Christ. He made a good confession. He has confessed that Jesus is Lord. He has confessed that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is. He's become a Christian. He says to fight the good fight. Next, he says to keep your eyes on Jesus. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, alone who has immortality, whom dwells in, a, in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He's given this last address. 
It's like, he said, I charge you, Timothy, the presence of God. Imagine uh, a, a fighter, a boxer, a UFC fighter in between rounds. They're, they're, they're exhausted. They're in their corner. They're, they're not thinking clearly. They're, they're, it's just exhausting. And they're, they're, they're tired. And the coach is looking at them. He's give, they're giving them the, the, what they should do in this next round in order to win. This is the type of charge that Paul was giving Timothy, who's, who he wants to continue to fight this fight of faith. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. Man, this is a big deal. This is, this is better than a Rocky movie. This is better than, he's like, I'm charging you in the presence of God. By the power of God. Focus on Jesus. He goes through and talks about Jesus' testimony before Pontius Pilate. He is, he's, he is, talks about Jesus' second coming. His main focus here is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, church. When you're exhausted in the fight of faith, keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, Pilate said to him, he said, so you are king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says this in John 18, 37. This is the testimony that Jesus gives before Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the governing ruler uh, who, has the, who has the authority to crucify Jesus or to let him go. And when negotiating, Pontius Pilate is saying, is essentially trying to tell him, hey man, we can get out of this, but you keep saying you're king, you're not king. But Jesus says, no, 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 you just said I am. You said I am king. Jesus is king. This is the confession. Jesus is king. And for this purpose, the per- Jesus says, for the purpose, this purpose he's come into the world, that he would become king. He would be king. And he'd be the type of king who takes away the sin of the world. He would be the type of king who goes after the rebel, the, the rebellious. He would be the type of king who goes after the self-righteous. He would be the type of king who, who goes after those who are hurting and who are suffering. He would go after those who were openly opposed to him. He would go after those who hate him. He would go after all those who have sinned. That's every single person. He would go after love and tenderness to seek and save those who are lost and that's everyone. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's charging him in, in this last round at the end of this letter. He says, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus before Pontius Pilate. He was about to be crucified and killed. And he endured. He endured so that you could be saved. This isn't a, a, oh, Jesus endured, so you should endure, or look how tough Jesus is, why don't you be tough too? This is Jesus endured for your salvation, church. He endured so you could be saved. He went all the way to the cross being publicly shamed, mocked, beaten, murdered for you. And Paul is telling Timothy, remember this. When everything seems dark, you feel exhausted and, and things are hard and you just don't know how the next three months are going to be. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He did not give up. He endured so that you could be saved. Meaning you are His. He is with you. He will not leave you. He continued, he says, and therefore obey Him. Verse 14. He says, to, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Until Jesus comes, obey his word. You've been counted righteous already, church. You've been counted righteous if you're in Christ. You've been given the Holy Spirit to empower you to live the life that Christ lived. To live righteously. To keep the commandment unstained. Jesus kept the commandment unstained perfectly for you. You've been accredited that righteousness. And he's saying, live like your new identity. Keep pressing on. If you ever struggle in your faith, remember that Jesus endured on your behalf. Where you were faithless, he is faithful. Keep clinging to Jesus. Keep running the race. Keep fighting to him. He says this, then at the proper time, at the proper time, Jesus is coming back. Which he will display at the proper time. He who, this is an awesome scene. 
Jesus has come, and he is coming again. The first time he came, and he was a slain lamb. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, we're told. He was publicly shamed, crucified, and beaten. After being dead for three days, Jesus rose victoriously, conquering sin, Satan, death, and death. Hopefully we've been clear about that. But then, when he comes back, I need you to see this. We're going to read this verse 15. When he comes back, he is not coming back as a slain lamb. He's coming back as the rightful, conquering, ruling king. He is that at this moment. He is seated at the right hand of God. From there, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And this is what it will look like. When he returns at the proper time, he who is blessed and the only sovereign. Meaning, there is one king, there's one absolute reigning authority in all of life. His name is Jesus. There's, he, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, meaning there is no other king and there is no other kingdoms. There are only rebels rebelling against the one true and right king. He is the Lord. Right now, Jesus is Lord. Right now, Jesus is the only sovereign. Right now, Jesus is the king of kings. Who alone has immortality? You can't kill him. They tried to already. Did not work. He was dead in the grave, rose victorious because he was sinless. He's immortal. He is the image of the immortal, invisible God. He dwells in an unapproachable light. When he comes back, he's coming in glory. He's coming in power. He's coming. If you're not in Christ, when he comes, it will terrify you. It's unapproachable. This is the type of light that when Moses said, hey, God, I'm going to see your face. And God told Moses, you're crazy. You can't see my face. If you do, you'll die. Ah, I'll see it anyway. He says, all right, put your face in a rock. Moses puts his face in a rock. God runs viral. When Moses gets to see where God was, didn't even get to see him. It comes back down glowing. This is a metaphor. His, his glory is on display in such a way when Moses saw a part of him that it changed him forever. If he would have seen the fullness of his glory, he would have literally become nothing and died. Then Jesus is the one we had not seen the Father, but Jesus is the exact imprint of him. It says, To him be honored and eternal dominion. Paul is getting really excited about this Jesus guy. He's saying, Timothy, find the good You've made the confession. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Obey him and hold fast he's coming back. And when he does, he's literally a lot of the sky. And all those who are his will rejoice. And all those who are not will tremble. See, our time here on earth is an opportunity to receive the gift that Christ has given himself, salvation, the sacrificial atonement, the slain lamb crucified in your Put your faith in him. But he is coming back. He's coming back as a ruling king. And we will all stand before him. And the question that will be asked is that, did you reject my sin atoning sacrifice? Did you reject the only thing that could save you? And if you hear this today, you're all now held accountable to this word. If you leave here and you reject Jesus, the blood is not on my hands, it's on yours. This is what Jesus is telling Pilate. Pilate tries to clear his hands of his guilt with Jesus. He says, you're guilty. I am king. Jesus loved you so much that he gave himself for you. Why would you reject the most loving person who ever lived? Why would you reject his sacrifice? Why would you reject it knowing that he's coming back? Some of you have house-sitted before. And you, when you know someone's coming back, you like clean up. You do some sort of effort. Jesus is not asking you to clean anything up. He's not asking you to fix yourself. He's not asking you to do anything. He's saying, come to me. I'll clean it all up for you. I will make, I will fix everything. All the wrongs that you've done, all 
the sins that you've committed. I will deal with them. I will fix them. And I'm coming back. Get ready. Anticipate. He says, until he comes back, he now turns to the rich and says, be rich in good works. He says in verse 17, ask for the rich in his presentation. Now, I'm going to pause there. Some of you are like, man, I'm not rich. I just want you to know we're probably all more well off than anyone who is reading this in the first century. We all probably would be considered to some level rich in, uh, in Timothy's day. It's, it's highly likely that that's true. Now, I can't say it with 100% certainty, but I know none of you all are bond servants or slaves, which the majority of this church was. I'm just saying, you know, we probably live more well off uh, and might be considered rich. Just take that into consideration as you read this. Uh, and as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty, the uncertainty of riches. This is where it relates to all Americans. Like, our, our, our dollars bill saying, God, we trust. Really, we don't trust anything but money, right? If we have money, then we're happy. If we don't have money, we're unhappy. If inflation goes up, we're stressed. If, if the, the housing market goes down, you buy a house, you're all. Like, our, our, our emotional well-being, our hopes are, are set up on riches as a nation. Let's just be honest. Don't do that. He said, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with us everything to enjoy. This is what it means. This is God doing this. This is true. Tell them there to do good, there to do good, be rich in good works, and to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He speaks to two different types of rich. He says the haughty rich and the humble rich. The haughty rich are the, those who place their hope in their, their, their things. They've, they've gathered wealth. Rich in this passage, not just money, but it's the, the, the wealth. It's the accumulation of all that you have. Uh, some can be rich in, in uh, finances, but they could be rich in property or cattle or, or a lot of things in this day. Uh, but, but don't rich have a, have a lot of wealth. Uh, they've, they've accumulated a lot of stuff. They're, they're, they're rich. He says there's two, two types of rich. There's the haughty rich that they have everything, so they lord over people thinking they're better. It's pride, arrogance, I'm better than you because look, look what I got. They show off their, their status by their, the cars they drive, the, the, uh, the clothes they wear. They, they want people to know, like, look, look at me. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. Having nice things. This is the, the, the issue knows speaking to the heart. But there's this heart in a body rich that just wants the glory for his or herself. Then the humble rich is the one who is, is rich in good works. They understand that, that riches are uncertain. He says, don't, don't put your trust and your hope in, in the uncertainty of riches. Put your trust in the certainty of God, not money, not stuff. The, the humble rich use their stuff to bless. He says to charge them to, to not just not be haughty, but also to be, be rich in good works, to do good, to be generous, to enjoy what God has given them. So please see this. He said, he says, bless, do good works, be generous. But he says also enjoy what you got. Enjoy what you got. Some people think that if you have a lot of money, you got to give it all away. You can't enjoy any of it. Enjoy. Jesus enjoyed a lot of stuff. He enjoyed wine at a, at a uh, party, at a wedding. He enjoyed uh, it was the good stuff too. Apparently, top shelf. I don't know how high. It was pretty high though. Uh, it was I mean, it was, it was the God wine. That was, was pretty good wine. Uh, he enjoyed. He enjoyed a feast. He enjoyed hanging out. He enjoyed. He enjoyed food and, and fellowship so much that he was called a drunken, drunkard, drunkard, and a glutton. Uh, neither, neither of which he did. He enjoyed food, though, so he went to some cool restaurants, he had some good food. It was really awesome he had some good drink and beverages. He enjoyed his life. He enjoyed what God had given him. See, if you don't, there, there's, there are people who, who have a lot and they spend a lot, but they don't enjoy any of it. Whatever, however rich or poor you are, you're to enjoy what God has given you and then be generous and blessed. He says, he says to tell them to be, be ready, be ready to share. This is position of the heart, ready to share. It's your heart in position that, that has an eagerness that wants to bless. 
He says, all that has been given to you is a gift from God. All that you've been given is a gift from God. See, the poor can be haughty too. Or it's the person who's like always walking around telling you how much they don't have. Ah, oh, just, just, or sometimes they have a sign, not dogging anyone on the street, but saying like, this is, this is a, a type of, well, I, I'm, I'm meaningless. I have no value. No one loves me. This is the, this is self-pity is also a form of pride. It's a form of pride. This isn't, you shouldn't be so arrogant where you're like, I don't need any help. See, that, that's also an applauding poor person. They want everyone to know, but they don't want any help. They don't want any help. See, there's a humble poor too that understands that, man, God has given them the day they, that they have. And he, they're going to use their, their gifts, their talents, their treasures, whatever they have to glorify God. If that means that they need to, to, to go take, you know, mow someone's lawn, they'll mow someone's lawn. They're going to they're gonna be a part of the, the, the process however they can. They're going to humble themselves. There's no job too low for them. And then when they, if you, if you ever met a, a humble, a, a, a poor person, they, they share. After the, some of the most generous people I've ever met are people who don't have much. In the slums of Kenya saw a lady give us her, her last thing of milk. And when are you getting milk? In? I don't know. It's my last one. John came over here. We want to make tea. So we're going to fire up the, the stove, put the, the tea in the milk, because that's what they do in Kenya. And now we're going to drink this. It's generosity. She's rich in good works. You can be poor, you can be rich, but if you're a child of God, you're called to be rich in good works. Not you. you can be poor, you can be rich, but you can be haughty and proud and arrogant. Paul St. Charles not to do that. Charging us in, in the presence of God not to do that, but to be good, rich in good works. Think through how can I give? How can I serve? Not about uh, it's not comparing myself to anyone else, but God, this is your stuff. You you've given this to me. How can I steward it to, to love people, to serve people, to bless people? How can I use my network to, to create opportunities to, to bless these other individuals or, or those who are, are outside the church? Or how, how do we do this? How do we leverage what we have? It's this mindset and this heart that's like, I just want to bless people, I want to serve people, I want to help people. I need you to understand we live in a new day, a new day where, where needs are different, uh, financial needs are different, economic needs are different, technological needs are different. We live in a totally new world. Many of you work in places where you don't actually see people regularly. You work online. And so you actually don't have any friends anymore. And like as far as physical humans that you encounter. So you, have, you might have to spend money to go to a gym so that you can start working out, not only to get physically fit, but also to get a friend. Find a friend, a non-Christian friend, someone you can bless, someone you can love, or just, you know, walk over to your neighbor and knock on their door. I know it sounds scary, but they live there. They'll answer at some point in time. And just tell them your name and say, how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I bless you? You're like, we live in a world that's going to take, take risk in order to, to have relationships for the sake of the gospel. But moreover, it might, take, it might cost money. It might cost money to, 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 to go to a third space or, or get your coffee from a particular place so that you can uh, engage in, in relationships with the baristas or, or those who are there so that you can reach people for Jesus. Some of us can't do be rich in good works because we don't know anyone to be rich in good works too. That doesn't mean that this command is, goes over your head and hits the person behind you. This is to us in this present age. Don't be haughty. Don't set your hope in riches. Set your hope in God, who richly provides, will give you what you need, pray to Him, ask Him for things, enjoy what He's given you, and then use that to steward it to bless others. That might mean use what you've been given to make friends so that you can do this. Or just go knock on your neighbor's door. It's free. If you're worried about which one to pick, you have two options. One's high bar in, uh, in, in, in price, below in uh, relational you know, stress. The other is high in relational stress, but cheap, free, easy. This is the type of thinking Paul wants the church to be about. Be rich in good works. How do I bless people? How do I meet people? How do I serve people? How do I love people? How do I do it? And he's not, notice he doesn't give you a, a checklist. He's telling you, and then you're supposed to hear it and go, I've got to figure out how to apply this. That's your job. He says, 
In doing so, you store up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This, this, this good foundation, this firm foundation, what he's saying is, this is a great investment for your future. This is one you can bank on. This is an investment that is, that is, is, is going to get a residual gain. You're going to meet people. Their souls are going to be saved. Their, their, their eternity is going to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They're going to be, they're going to be radically different humans. Their children, their children's children, their cities, their nations are going to be utterly changed because you were rich in good works. It's a good foundation. It's a, it's a good investment. It's the best investment, actually, because God's word will not return void. Like, well, the first person I did this to, they, they stopped being my friend, and my neighbor now hates me, and they call the cops on me, and it, because I'm a Christian. Like, okay, go to the other neighbor. They do it too, find someone else. I guarantee you, you give your life to be rich in good works to the cause of Christ, and you're going to look behind you and see a wave of Christians that were never would have been a Christian if you did not do this. You're going to see people who are so far from God right now who know, love, and trust Jesus more than you do now if you just commit to this. How do you think we got here today? How do you think we got here? There was 11 dudes after Jesus rose from the dead. 11. He says, go disciple the world. Everyone. Which part of the world? Every single person. Every single person. They said, all right. Let's do it. They went out and did it. Imagine if we just went out and did it. You don't have to imagine it. You were living proof that someone did do that. And that's the type of church we are. This is the type of church we are. We are going to be the type of church that lays this firm foundation that invests in being rich in good works. Not We're not going to organize it so that you can do it. We're going to empower you to go do it. Everyone wants the church that gives them the exact thing to fall in line and check off obedience on faith. I'm really good at good works because the church gave me all these things to do. The church told me who to feed. The church told me all the... They, they organized everything so I get... Whew, no, go do it. You... Period. Where you live, work, and play. Those people are your commission. If you needed someone to tell you to go do it, I'm telling you, go do it. It's a good investment. He says this. In doing so, he says, verse 19, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Like Paul is telling Timothy to, to, to grab hold of eternal life, he's saying, Paul, tell the ritter, Paul is saying, tell the rich that take hold of the mission. That's where true life is. You want happiness? Get on mission with Jesus. You want joy? Get on mission with Jesus. You want the abundant life? Get on mission with Jesus. They may kill you, but it'll still be awesome. It'll still be the most joy-filled life you ever have. I promise you this. It'll be the hardest thing you've ever done. But following, clinging to the mission of Jesus will be the most exhilarating, the most empowering, the most life-giving thing you could do. Jesus says, better to give, more happy than to receive. The blessed life is the life, the happy life is the one following, clinging, holding closely to Jesus and his mission. And lastly, he says, Timothy, I've entrusted you with the gospel. O Timothy, verse 20, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble. I wish I could tell you what these things I could, but it derail us on time. If I talk like this to you, you don't get offended. I just need you to know this. Like, the stuff in the Bible, like, this is, he's, he's saying, stop with the stupid stuff. There's other words I wish I could say. <laughs> like, he's, he's really saying it. Stop with it. The irreverent babble and the contradictions. So many people, like, I think he was looking at Twitter. I think he's what he was doing. <laughs> Just like, and they they fought uh, contradicts what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. This is his last words, and he ends with this again, biting metaphor <coughs> to keep your hands up, to guard, keep your hands up, to guard what's been entrusted to you. This is hands up, gloves on. This is an active command, not a passive. 
This is the act of protecting. This is the act of defending. And what is he defending? He's not defending his face, but he's defending the deposit that he's been entrusted. The deposit is the gospel. He's called to fight and defend the gospel. Not only the gospel, but the implications of the gospel. To defend the truth. Jesus says the truth will set us free. He says to be ready to fight. Be ready to defend the gospel. It's been entrusted to you. Paul says it this way to the, the Corinthians. He says, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Christ crucified. Paul is telling Timothy that the gospel matters. To not get caught up into a bunch of other battles to get caught up into things that are false teachers and their nonsense. See, false teachers' nonsense, they're valid. They deny the truth. So Paul is to guard the truth, to defend the truth, to proclaim the truth. They deny the truth. Additionally, they contradict what? They contradict God's word. They contradict God's word. Anyone, I need you to see this. Any teaching that contradicts God's word should be by the people of God ready to be fought and to be destroyed, to be eliminated from people's hearts and minds. This is why sometimes I get in trouble and offend people because this is where we draw the line. When there's ideologies and teachings that contradict the gospel, and we're told to just let people, you know, think what they want to think, all paths lead to God anyway. No, they don't. That's a contradiction to God's word. Jesus says he's the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and the only way to the Father is by him. You say there's another way to God, and we're ready to fight. Not physically. I'm going to fight your arguments. I'm going to fight your ideologies. I'm going to fight your worldview. I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to strip it down to the point where you feel ashamed that anyone could believe that because it's foolishness. And you should do the same thing too. This is what a defending the gospel means. When Elisha was standing against the prophets of Baal, they were, were opposing God mocking God. They were cutting themselves and making human sacrifices. Some of them, even babies. We call it abortion and human rights here in our world today. They were mocking God. He said, gird your loins, let's take this outside and we're going to see who's the real God. And what he did, they made two offers, they made two uh, sacrifices to be burned. And they were supposed to call on their gods and the, the God who burned the altar was the winner. So what did Elijah do? He built the altar and then took water and poured it all over it. So just to show, I'm stripping down your gods. I'm mocking your gods. I'm telling you that they're pointless. My God's not only going to lick up this water, but it's going to burn this altar, proving that he is the only God. He did that. They ran in fear. Instead of faith, Jesus himself was stripped. They mocked him. They brutally beat him. They executed him. They murdered him. They, 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 they spit on him. They killed him. They thought they had won. But he, he rose from the dead victorious, mocking, shaming any other God. He exposed them, we're told through the scriptures, he exposed them to shame. This is what the gospel does. It shows us that any faith apart from Jesus, we should be ashamed of it. It's worthless. It's futile. So there are two options. Same options as Elijah the prophets of Baal. You could respond in faith. Put your faith in Jesus. He is 
put sin open to shame, Satan open to shame, all other religions and doctrines open to shame. And so there's one way he's proven it through his resurrection. You can look upon that news and say, I believe, I trust, I have faith. That's the gospel. Or you can run in fear as you reject that are two options. You can continue to mock it. Sure, there's a third. You can mock it continually. But just so you know, when you mock the one who stood your place for your sins, when you meet him face to face, you're not going to mock it. You'll be silent at the day of judgment. I'm pleading. Pleading. Believe. This is a scare tactic. This is a believe now. We've been entrusted with this news, this gospel. It's simply news to tell you. I'm telling you that the king has won. Believe. He ends with this. Grace be to you. Grace be to you. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Grace is... What Jesus has on you right now, breathing, it's given you common grace. The stuff you have, the life you have, the place you live is common grace. But then there's the grace of salvation. Those who've trusted Jesus, who put their faith in Jesus, who are wanting to put their faith in Jesus now, it's a type of grace. It's a grace, unmerited favor. It's a, it's a grace of salvation. We don't need just salvation and grace. So we, we, we don't need grace simply only for salvation. We need grace for, yes, for salvation. We need grace for our sustained everyday life. We say it often that the same gospel that saves you is the same gospel that sustains you. Paul ends his letter with saying, grace be to you. This isn't something like signing off now or taking my up. It's not saying just something of, of, of meaningless closing remarks. It's something in order to do everything I just said. You need grace. You need power. It comes from God. Grace be to you. I need us to see in closing that we can't earn God's love. We can't earn God's salvation. We all need grace. But some of you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. And receive grace for the first time. Receive Jesus for the first time. Some of you need to live your life unpowered by your uh, haughtiness or by what you can do on your own strength. But you need to leverage and use what you have empowered by the grace of God to cling to your faith, to fight the good fight to keep running the race, to continue with Jesus' mission. Whatever it is, you need grace. I need you to know, too, that God can take care of your sin problems. Some of you are just, you're like, yes, I hear this, but I just have season I'm in, so the darkness won't let up. You need to know this. If Jesus can take care of your sin problem, he can take care of all your problems. Keep moving forward. Fight the fight. Faith. Take hold of the mission. We've been entrusted with the gospel. It's not just Timothy. It's everyone in here has now been entrusted with this word that was preached today. To leave here and do it. Lead grace. The summer is coming to an end. The fall is beginning. I believe God has great things in store for us this fall. The question is, not does God have great things in store. And is God going to move in power? And God going to do things that if we knew now that we wouldn't even believe it. The question is not, is he going to do that? The question is, do you get involved? Do you play a part? Do you? Are you going to be rich in good works? Are you going to be filled with joy and a privilege to fight the good fight, to, to get into spiritual shape, to, to keep your eyes on Jesus no matter what you're going through, to keep going and not give up? I'm just saying, what if y'all ran out for Jesus like that? <laughs> I'm just saying, we'll change the world. The city will be transformed. 
Let's depend on Jesus. Let's run the race. Let's fight the fight. Let's not give up. Let's cling to Jesus. Put our hope in Jesus. To use his mercy and grace that's new every morning, daily. Do not give up. And let's see what God can do. Let me pray. Let me take it. Lord Jesus, as this fall comes upon us, the summer comes to an end, now we want to fight the fight of faith, the good fight. We want to keep our eyes on you, Jesus. We want to run towards you with joy and gladness. We, want to, we don't care what other people think of us. We're going to run after you like a child would, their parent or someone else's parent or whatever just happened. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We trust that you're working, that you use even the little things, the little things in life to remind us of your calling. The joy of a child should be the joy of our hearts that just longs to just go and do and be what we've been created to be. Give us confidence in you, Jesus. Give us steadfastness in you. Help us to have push the pace, advance the gospel, and bear much fruit. For your name's sake, we ask this in Jesus' name.